Ryan Olke. What's up, buddy? Hey, good to see you, man. Great to we, see you, man. We're here. We continue in existence. We persist. We persist. <laughs> <laughs> we we are some persistent sons of bitches. Let me tell you that. We are here. Yep. Well, so yeah, we are here. And we are here uh, basically to continue uh, a conversation that we started over the last month or two, which I've been sort of uh, jokingly calling the, the, the Humpty Dumpty conversation. How do we start putting Humpty Dumpty back together again? And of course, you know, sort of the joke in that is you can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again, right? I mean, all the king's horses and all the king's men have tried. Mm. And basically, your only option is to find a new damn egg. Yeah, it seems like where we're at in a lot of ways, you know. Yep, yep not just to put, put, put the same thing back together, but we're trying to, there's been a deconstruction of what was, what used to be and trying to find out what's coming next. Yep, yep. Build back better, as they say. God, what Build a terrible slogan. <laughs> it's got three Bs in it. It's, yeah, yeah, it's got, it's got, it's got alliteration. Like alliteration, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's so, it seems like a focused, grouped version of uh, Make America Great Again, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, we've long talked about their messaging. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we have. And we're not going to talk about today, but we're going to talk about no. um, something sort of related. Yeah. Uh, which is... This massive social crisis that we are currently undergoing around our issues of trust. Mm-hmm. And man, is this such an important issue? And, you know, this is um, the sorts of problems that I think integral minds really like to key in on are what we call wicked problems. And, you know, just to sort of refresh our audience, the definition of a wicked problem is basically a problem that is so complex and so multivalent, has so many different moving parts that you can find factors in all four quadrants. And in fact, once you change one of those factors in any of those four quadrants, it then changes the other factors in all the other quadrants. All these things hang together and all of these sort of, uh, you know, quadratic factors are producing feedback loops with each other. They're co-creating the conditions for each other. And so it is a massively complex problem that minimally requires an integral understanding and really an integral granularity in order to fully wrap our minds around and come up with effective solutions, interventions, et cetera. And when it comes to these wicked problems, I mean, we're talking about things like climate change. We're talking about things like social fragmentation. And here we're talking about the collapse of social trust, Hmm. um, which seems to be an issue that's not just affecting America. I mean, it's definitely really affecting America, but we're seeing this all across the world. Hmm. Um, You know, there are there are global indexes that track this stuff. Mm. And they've been seeing a constant decline of trust in each other, in our society, in our governing institutions, in our media institutions. I would even so, go so far as to say in ourselves, in our relationship with God or evolution or sort of whatever big, you know, whatever word you have for this ongoing unfolding. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, trust is definitely sort of in tatters these days. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping we can have a, a generative conversation that can track yeah. some of these issues, uh, take a look at some of the, the main challenges that we're seeing in each of these quadrants, mm-hmm. and maybe even come up with a few, you know, kind of easy methods of self-care 
and methods of practice, trust building practice mm-hmm. uh, that we can share with each other and with our audience. What do you think about that? I love it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Trust is a, just taking a little note here for later. Um, this is so interesting. It's a, definitely a fascinating topic. And actually when uh, I first started teaching, I kind of just, I like to use what's already been, been created and tested over time, but I also like to step, take a step back and like, what do I know really? You know, let, let me write down just what I think I know maybe. And I kind of mapped out like a, um, a progression of, of waking up, I would say a little bit is more in the waking up category. And for me, I ended up putting in the final stage trust, um, which has a little bit of mystery to it. And even like, it's a topic that's so fascinating to me, but if you go Google like trust, there's one Wikipedia page on there and there are social theories and a little philosophy on there, but it's not like huge, Mm. you know, like if you look up meaning, for example, another word that's quite big and quite relevant right now, used very much colloquially, um, you find tons of uh, pages and philosophical traditions and psychological traditions. But it's really interesting to me that trust doesn't have as much, which to me would indicate that, yeah, there's going to be some ambiguity around it. Like even when we explore it, which is even more challenging a little bit in a time where we're feeling a lack of trust. So it's just sort of a starting point of just like, hmm, this is interesting to, to note. Um, what the hell do we mean by trust when we say that word? And uh, what does it feel like to not have trust? And yeah. of course, a model like Integral allows us to find different ways in which we might speak of trust or experience trust, which is really useful. So I'm excited yep. to, to do that today. Yep. Well, and of course, Ken Wilber has written, um, you know, fairly extensively, not not necessarily on trust, but on the principles of truth yes. and on the principles of validity claims. Right. You know, he talks about how truth does not exist in a vacuum. Truth is dependent. Upper right quadrant falsifiable truth uh-huh. is dependent on upper left quadrant truthfulness. Right. Mm-hmm. And truthfulness implicitly means trust. How much trust do you have that this source, this person, this organization, what have you, is telling you the truth? What is their track record of truth telling? Mm-hmm. Is it If it's a good track record, then you're going to place more trust in them and therefore you're going to regard them as more truthful. Um, if they have been caught and exposed in lies and corruption, etc., then you know, you should probably take a more cautious eye to those sorts of sources. Mm. Um, so, you know, Ken has talked about, um, you know, how trust fits into uh, this overall fabric of truth finding, um, yeah. which I think is, is, is a pretty good starting place. Um, but I think, you know, ultimately, when we look at what is the function of trust in a society, you know, to me, um, I often like using these kinds of metaphors because they're prominent for me, but trust is something like an immune system for a society at large. And mm. it prevents, you know, certain kinds of regression, uh, certain kinds of um, just political manipulation, um, you know, all of that sort of co- fills in the space where trust should be. So trust is paramount for any functional society, especially a functional democracy. And what we've been seeing over the last month post-election is a constant attack on trust. You know, we actually have a, a 
a lame duck president right now who is fomenting distrust among as many people as he possibly can in the institutions that support democracy as we know it. You know, and I made a joke a couple episodes ago that democracy is is kind of like one of those ancient gods. You know, it's like Zeus. It's only as real as you believe in it. <laughs> and mm-hmm. as soon as enough people, a plurality of people stop believing, stop trusting, then democracy has no legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Right. And then yeah. once you de- start delegitimizing democracies, then you have a real fairly terrifying possibility of a backslide to more authoritarian forms of governance. Yeah. And it's really interesting. So a few things kind of maybe a little random, but connected. So I've been uh, diving into uh, work by a, a guy named David Chapman. I don't know if you know him, but uh, his uh, work, he has a website, uh, which is really an ongoing book that you just put into a website called Meaningness. And uh, actually, I'll, you can go look this up later, but he uh, he postulates that he's actually the character in Ken's uh, Boomeritis book. And he, oh, yeah, I did read that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, right. So, uh, but he's super you know, interesting. Can I, can I just say really yeah. before we get into that? Yeah. When I first read Boomeritis, I thought the same thing, which was what exactly told me that I had Boomeritis. No, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, well, um, he uh, he's really great. And he talks about um, stances we take towards reality, you know, and actually a complete stance very much feels in line with uh, a lot of, you know, what Ken says uh, about taking a more complete stance, but some of the partial stances uh, that he highlights is eternalism and nihilism, which takes different forms. It's not just in the religious context, Um, but he makes note that it seems like that we as humans are not disposed to be so much in nihilism. Um, Like we we oscillate between these more more likely than than anything else. But if we're going to be like really in one camp or the other, it's more likely it will be in the camp of eternalism because nihilism just seems like evolutionary uh, speaking it doesn't serve us so much to hang out in nihilism. And so trust relates this to here because for example, with eternalism, we, we have confidence and trust that there is meaning to life, that there is an answer, that there is a plan, whether that plan's religious or whether that plan is uh, rational and scientific. And that gives us confidence. And that's probably why it's an evolutionary function to lean that way is because it's like, we gotta, if, if we can't trust in literally anything, we can't, what do we do? And like those kinds of states of deep, distrust within ourselves can manifest like depression, for example, like it becomes hard to, to, to do anything. So like when somebody's, (laughs) uh, somebody or people are trying to, uh, sow distrust, it puts us in a real nihilistic state of being, which isn't really sustainable. Even if we're going to say eternalism and nihilism are incomplete stances, we still got to be functional in the world. We still have to deal with reality. And we've, we've, I know a lot, many of us felt like we're not dealing with reality super well this year. So that's one thing. And the other thing I wanted to mention is like, when we look up the word trust, I always like looking up words in the dictionary just to orient myself, especially with words Mm -hmm. that are super common. So we can have trust in like facts, for example, like, you know, is this a bottle or not a bottle? I trust this is a bottle. I'm not hallucinating. Right. So there's some things that's like really concrete when we say trust. And we have a lot of problems with that right now that we trust in facts, like all the time news. It's like you go on, you can go on the news and say, I'm holding a bottle, like fake news, you know, (laughs) there's no bottle. And you're like, what's going on? And like, that's maddening. Then we can look at trust, like in the quadrants, like, do I trust my own experience? You know what I mean? So this is like, we talk about them in, in, uh, with emotions, you know, and uh, like, um, especially like with gaslighting, things like that. Can I trust my own experience? You know, like I feel angry and I trust that my anger is valid or I feel happy. Do I trust you? That's the 
lower left quadrant or do I trust us what's going on here? Do I trust it? You know, what I'm, what I'm seeing out there, do I trust our systems? So I think just even teasing out a little bit, starting with a more broad point can be helpful here in this conversation of like, what do we mean by trust? Which kind of trust? And then which quadrants are, are we talking about trust? And of course, like you mentioned earlier, all this is happening at once and there's a lot of distrust all over the place, um, which makes this a compounding sort of meta crisis kind of situation around meaning and trust. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's good news and bad news. And I think that the numbers actually bear out your point against this um, in terms of this rejection of nihilism, because as it turns out, the majority of the population, in fact, the vast majority of the population is optimistic when it comes to our potential for rebuilding and restoring trust. I see this as tremendously good news. So even though we're all sort of sitting in this cynicism, there's some part of us that recognizes that there's something better on the other shore, right? Mm. There's some part of us that recognizes there's some place to go from here. Yeah. And I think that's, that's tremendously encouraging. I, I want to share real quick, you know, I, I figure yeah. as we start kind of touring through these, you know, different uh, factors in all the four quadrants, let's start in the lower right quadrant. Mm -hmm. um, so I have this, uh, this um, collection of stats from Pew Research which you listening can decide whether or not you trust Pew Research or if you trust polling as a whole. I mean, this is just an, an example of one mm. of sort of the areas where we might be coming into this conversation with some distrust. But let's just take it in good faith and sort of see how it feels. So we have this. Uh, did that show up? So we have uh -huh. um, this collection of um, basically polling data where people were asked, first they were asked, you know, basically, do you think this can get better? Do you think it's possible to restore trust? And for those who think trust in the federal government, we're talking about the federal government specifically here, which I think is a good place to start because it's probably one of the most difficult areas to rebuild trust, particularly in the post-Vietnam, post-Watergate world. I mean, the last 50 years has seen this constant sort of erosion of trust in government um, as soon as sort of those levels of corruption were, were brought to light. And ever since we've been looking for, uh, you know, other sort of um, flags, other red flags that indicate um, equivalent levels of corruption. And a lot of people think they see it all the time in our government. Mm -hmm. But the good news is 84% of adults think it's possible to improve Americans' confidence in the federal government. Mm -hmm. And then they give a whole list of, of things when asked, this is what people think would help. Now, mm -hmm. I think it's important when we look at a list like this to not, you know, it, it's not sort of a list of priorities. It's just a list of what has the potential to be selected for by culture at large when and if we start implementing some solutions here. So, you know, 23% of people believe that this begins, the most important priority here is reforming our political systems. And they include things like practicing more transparency, less secrecy. It's kind of hard to kind of nail down what exactly each of these means, but right. you, you I think can recognize the spirit of what that means. Mm -hmm. Enacting term limits. That's an example of something that I think would actually decrease trust in the long term. And we can have a very long conversation about it, but it shows, again, the type of solutions that people are thinking about and that can get selected for. Um, curtailing the role of money in politics. I was surprised that wasn't higher on the list. Um, uh, conducting fair elections, fixing the constitution. So all of these roll up into this group of 23% of, of trusting Americans believe that this is sort of the best way forward. Um, and then there's, you know, various policies that can be hmm. fixed. Hey. 
Syracuse economic. You know, it's interesting. Um, one, uh, that, yeah, it is a high number, which mm-hmm. would, yeah, indicate like the, the, the kind of just natural orientation, like in spite of ourselves kind of thing, like we're going to lean towards like, it's gotta be some hope we got, there's gotta be possibility. You know what I mean? We're going to ultimately land there a lot of times. Um, and, but also at the same time, like even the, the response of 23% is not very high in terms of, in terms of identifying what would be helpful, you know, to improve confidence and the numbers are really low. So it's, if I was going to draw a super simple conclusion, it's like, definitely we can improve and I have no effing idea how to do it. Right. That's that right. would be the conclusion here, which is really fascinating. And that, you know, down here it says refuse, don't know 33%. So again, we have to read into this a little bit and we mm-hmm. always take these things with a grain of salt, but that would make sense to me that that would be a, an honest response of a lot of people It's just like, I feel like we can do better than this and we can improve confidence and got no clue how to do that primarily because everything we've been trying hasn't been working. And, and like, that's, even when we're talking about politically speaking, a lot of people just got to feel that because nothing's really been done. If we really look at it, there's hardly anything been done in many, many years. Um, so right. an interesting place. Right. Well, and notice too that all of these interventions are lower right quadrant interventions. Yeah, which is They're all yeah. lower right prescriptions. Right. So that's a bias here that this were the kind of things there wasn't any suggestions of like, for example, how do we have conversations? That's right. You yeah, know, exactly. like a, a lot Diane Hamilton's work you know? <laughs> yep. Well, and I thought, you know, the other reason why you can't look at this as a list of priority, as a ranked list of priorities, sure, yeah. as you know, for example, uh, 3% of people say curtailing the role of money in politics, 7% of people say just getting rid of Trump. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, let's sort of get a better, more clear sense of our priorities here and what yeah, was, yeah. would actually make an impact because yeah. as many of us say, Trump is not a cause of the sickness. He's a symptom of a social sickness, um, if anything else, if, if, if that's what you believe, um, you know, I know there's a lot of people watching right now who, um, are pro Trump and will make space for that too, even while telling you why you're wrong. Uh Um, so I thought that this was an interesting place to start because I found it encouraging that so many Americans not only have a vague sense that this can get better, but -hmm. they actually have their own kind of roadmap. And, um, you know, I think that there's some general kind of crowdsourced, wisdom that comes out of that um so that gives me hope yeah you know um something else related to this uh i was just reading out of religion of tomorrow because uh today in inter- integral dharma training we're going to do a little bit of we focus um and ken has a little great small chapter in the back of this book as kind of one of his uh what does he call it? like extra bits you know how the model like typology and things like that mm-hmm. and he has some really great notes in there but he makes it of course always the biggest thing that i know ken says about the we is like don't get confused like there's some sort of like central monad or, or central controlling consciousness that is like we're a part of, which can be a mistake sometimes of like postmodern green, like there are individuals who are participating. So what he says, there's not a dominant like monad, there's a dominant mode of discourse and resonance, you know? And, but the way he details that out, I think is really interesting there of like, how do people orient around all the values, beliefs, and behaviors to form a we and like in each he identifies, you know, for example, at a church, uh, traditional church, you might have what he calls the layering of a cake. And it's like most of the people are going to be in the layer of, of uh, you know, mythic kind of membership. You're going to have some that are magical, mythical, smaller layer of that. And you might have a smaller layer of people that might be in the rational green, you know, in a church. But you have those layers there. And even he's, he gives an example between science and a scientist who, who works in science but goes to a mythical kind of church that those kind of areas are separated 
Yeah, they get compartmentalized. They get compartmentalized. But I bring this up because, you know, trust from one perspective, we're going to look like trust is established via a combination of all these things of like, uh, do we agree on values and behaviors? And this is how we orient. So it's like, this is how we orient, how we make trust, how we stay oriented to trust is set by these, you know, uh, social containers that, that we're a part of, which were a part of many, many different we's, you know, small and macro. And it seems, I'm just like, this is kind of me thinking in real time about this. I found it really fascinating to read that part in, from Ken and think about this conversation. It's like how many social containers have been sort of disrupted like across the spectrum, you know, in recent times, like if you look at evangelicals, there's been a sense of like there's videos of them talking, being like, they're very, it's very confused because it's like, well, clearly they're going to support Trump, but then so many of his behaviors are, are out of line with what would normally be considered trustworthy. Yep. <laughs> in there and even there's videos acknowledging like where evangelical leaders are like having at a conference i forget who did this maybe vice but evangelical conference that meets every year and there's clear confusion about like what do we do about this like it's not the same old same old even in that contained context regardless of whether i'm part of that context or not i don't know i see that happen a lot of different we's are being shifted and transformed and disrupted um and ken makes the point that with the evolution of every i there will be necessarily evolving we's mm. and um so there's a question here are we evolving new we's and does that necessary to kind of shake out in order to have like trust and are we kind of in the midst of like this awkward difficult transition period in developmentally speaking which is a totally different thing that's not going to be listed on one of those pew <laughs> researches right. like should we emphasize development a developmental but one last thing ken acknowledges in there too which I was happy to see that because I keep saying this for myself that like, there's no real clear answer to how we practice development. Like there's a lot of ideas about it. There's a lot of descriptions of it, but like, there's not really any great, there's not that many great solutions. on like, how do we emphasize that? So development is part of this whole trust conversation. Yeah. Absolutely. You know. <laughs> no, no. And it's a really important point, particularly around sort of the social containers that all of this is unfolding within. And when we're taking a, you know, when we're starting, when we're actually emphasizing a lower right quadrant um, sort of, you know, look into this, I mean, what we're really doing is sort of taking, uh, you know, a, a somewhat Marxist kind of kind of view where we're saying, here are sort of the social containers, here's the shape of the social container. And we're noticing how our upper left consciousness and our lower left culture is sort of like a gas that expands to fill whatever container it finds itself in. And in this case, our containers, our social containers are shaped in a very particular way that have very particular consequences for the rest of us in all other quadrants. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the American Psychological Association, for example, they point to uh, the decrease. I would frame this as the rise of neoliberalism and the over uh, emphasis on the public sphere and the under emphasis on the private sphere. And as a result of that, a lot of our sort of communal rituals, things like going to church or gossiping with your neighbors or having a bowling league or, you know, things like this have been increasingly replaced with individual activities that keep us isolated from each other. So these days we are exposed to more people mm. than we've ever been exposed to in our lives. And yet we know fewer people than we've ever known right. in our lives. And within right. that social container, it's, you know, not too difficult to see how so much of this has atrophied, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Makes, and I, makes I, I think, I think also in some of the other lower right 
things that we want to take into consideration is I've just been doing a lot of thinking about how much economic incentive there is for driving and manufacturing mistrust versus the incentives, the short-term incentives for generating trust. And there's far more incentives to create distrust than there are to create trust in the short term. However, weirdly, in the long term, the exact opposite is true. Societies that have high levels of trust end up getting higher levels of, for example, financial investment. Right. And then you get more social mobility, GDP growth. I mean, these are all lower right quadrant factors, but they're important factors to look at, because if your basic deficiency needs are not being met, that's keeping you in a constant state of fear and anxiety and therefore mistrust. Someone's out to get you. Yeah. And that's a really good point. We brought it up before in different contexts, but, and this is well known at this point and uh, which is a good news to me. Like we have plenty of documentaries and news stories of just about how, for example, social media platforms have had impacts on us just individually as society in politics, things like that. And uh, the, you know, clearly, you know, the developers and designers coming out and saying like hundred percent, our data shows that if we emphasize fear and distrust and these kinds of things, we get more engagement and clicks, which leads to whatever advertising dollars or et cetera. That's what they care about. And so like, that's, yeah. And it seems like we're trying, or at least we're positioned to try to fix that or reclaim it a little bit. There's a question of like, what do we do with it? You know, like, for example, like Facebook is just such a huge part. We're all, we're all on it, you know, and we're all on Twitter. It's just like, well, what are we going to do? But it's important to know that if we're going to explore trust and know just like, how is this impacting me? Can I feel into this and be honest? Like, how does it impact me to engage in these platforms in the variety of ways? It's not say like get rid of the platform, but notice how I engage with it because mm-hmm. it can erode my own trust. You know, it can exhaust my ability to trust because, and it's not, it's my fault in the sense of taking responsibility for what I do, but it's also kind of like, well, we're part of these systems that, and that they didn't, we didn't get asked about how they should be created. <laughs> you know, it'd be like, I, I need water. And I didn't know that they were slipping, you know, drugs in the water until a little later, <laughs> but we didn't ask either in a certain way. Yep. Um, yeah. And, you know, some of the hope that I have too, like we've always seen this with different things in, in kind of lower right quadrant, like, especially like, for example, advertising, um, like, if you look, it's interesting. I watched a video the other day, a little, you know, fun YouTube video, like what happened to jingles? And they analyzed kind of the history of jingles. Like when we were kids, they're jingles and we still know them to this day. Like they're, they're in our brains, you know? Um, but they're not, they're not really that many jingles anymore. And uh, they just don't work on it. So there's some things that over time don't work on us. Like we know, looking back, how manipulative the commercials were when we were growing up and like they preyed upon different things in us. But after a while, we're like, this is bullshit. You know what I mean? And now you can't throw one of those super just like dopey, like we're going to take you for your money. You know, like you have to work harder to trick us. You can still get us, but you have to work a little harder and a little differently, more nuanced. So I don't know, maybe we'll find our way out of being hooked into some of these manipulative mechanisms that erode trust, but who knows? Probably just. Yeah. Well, I think that's part of sort of the the short-term gain around all this is, you know, you you sow distrust so that more people will trust you. You Right. You you tell people like, no, all those people are lying to you. I'm the only one telling you how it is. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a surreptitious sort of uh, shell game, you know, uh, where you're basically trying to, you know, dislodge people's trust in, for example, 
this thing called shared reality. Um, you have a number of people who are trying to dislodge as many people from that sense of shared reality as mm. possible. And that, you know, yes, shared reality is flawed, right? Sometimes uh, the, the, the institutions we trust the most get it wrong. Yeah. Right. And it's and it's their responsibility to sort of atone for that and work to rebuild trust again. And that's something I'd like to see much more of from our media institutions. I yeah. want media institutions to basically start educating people on journalistic practices. Like, here's how a story is written. Here's how stories are verified. Here's sort of the different levels of sourcing that we use. Here are the main validity claims that are important to journalism. It's like we need a, a re-education in critical thinking Very when much. it comes to consuming our media. Very much. It takes it. Yeah. I think it's important to acknowledge that, like, we're dealing with new challenges so like the part of like you know it's easy to beat ourselves up around like where do we go wrong you know like the old throwing the rocks at the google bus kind of thing where it's just mm -hmm. like i always remember like hey, listen we were all part of the train and we were now we're now we're upset later like we didn't know what was going on or something but you know also these are new challenges like we've we never this is a new thing in humanity in the last whatever couple decades to like be like connected real time to billion other people and have it more information than ever existed in the history of <laughs> humanity at a fingertip it's it's a different thing and which is really interesting why like certain practices that have been cultivated for example in spiritual traditions or like an integral life practice are now like really really practical they're not just like interesting and cool what can i experience it's like yeah like maybe we need some of these practices in order to be able to navigate these more complex waters that we live in and i tend to think that now do you think about things like virtual reality, for example, as that keeps coming up more and more, it's like, how are people not going to have some baseline of meditative ca capacity to be able to, to be in that realm? I mean, you know, like without going insane, right? It's just yeah, like, without, yeah, without fully dissociating. Yeah. Like there's some things that it's like, oh, now it's required. Like it doesn't mean like, oh, we should shun away from these new, these new realities. It's just like, we got to learn how to navigate them differently, you know? And like you said, critical thinking you know part of it is it has a critical thinking eroded and from where it used to be i think that's true like we've kind of had a step regression back but then also we just have new challenges that require new levels of critical thinking uh that demand more of us you know uh, i loved the point you made about how you know these sorts of interval conversations just a few years ago they were like nice to haves you know what i mean yeah. like, let's sit here and be kind of idealistic and like oh wouldn't it be great if for and sure, me in the past, that was definitely true. Yeah, yep. Long time. And and now I think reality has finally sort of met integral yep. face to face, right? Yep. And these are no longer nice to have. These are like, holy shit, these are basic requirements if I'm going to survive this era. And I like it because it's it's humbling and it and I think actually it makes the process better. I think when we practice from an idealistic standpoint. Yeah, great. Good things can happen, but it's so easy for it to go awry because, you know, we're, we're being motivated mainly by our idealism, but here it's just like, no, it matters. So like, I want to, I want to do this the best I can, you know, I'm, I'm paying attention. So I think integral is positioned well to have these conversations around trust. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, what else? I have, I, I have some other things to throw out there uh, around practice too. Um, well, we'll get there. We'll yeah. get to practice. Cause I, I've got a whole yeah. little section set oh, for, good. for left stuff. And I think that's yeah, gonna, yeah, yeah. in lower I left. I mean, that's where we want to really get into this. So I figured let's, let's finish up the exteriors. Let's, let's yeah. shift. The upper what, right. what, what else we got to, to cover on this? Well, let's look at the upper right, because, you know, another thing that I find myself thinking about is, um, you know, basically like physiological self-care. 
and how our physiological self-care actually, again, um, creates these resonance patterns with all of these other factors and all of the other quadrants. Um, you know, for example, I think that integral sort of comes with this implicit prioritization of learning how to recognize and make into object these interior states, emotional <laughs> states, spiritual right. states, and what have you, right? right. That's <laughs> really, I mean, that's foundational to, you know, there's a basic yes. level of like meta awareness that comes with integral consciousness that allows you to do that. But then there's another beat which I think is, is being able to then notice how these short-term interior states are actually correlated with our overall neurological health, the, you know, our brain health, our nervous system health, our diet, our exercise, et cetera. Um, because you know, trust, for example, we can find trust in the upper right quadrant. It looks like oxytocin oxytocin is like the is the trust drug it's it, you know it's oxytocin um both produces feelings of trust right and those feelings of trust produce more oxytocin so it becomes sort of a self-reinforcing mechanism that we have in our brain think for example of the feeling that you have of you know sort of that glow of openness and you know acceptance and deep trust in the space of radical vulnerability after having sex with someone that you love, you're flooded with oxytocin in that yeah. moment. And even though you are at your most vulnerable, there's just a complete sort of unshakable trust that emerges in that space. And yeah. I sort of think we're, you know, a little yeah. bit oxytocin depleted these days. So you're saying we all should bone each other. We all need to bone, brother. <laughs> That's your political message for that Biden should replace. No, but it's true. Actually, I thought a lot about it. They like, will uh, not replace us. <laughs> That's all right. It doesn't matter. It's like you, me, Corey, anybody. We're all we're all in this together. So yeah, I think that's right though, like about how to notice that, like, for example, with the pandemic, like going outside and going to stores. Now I know some it's interesting to think like how do people get to the place of denying something even on their deathbed of, uh, with COVID and being like, this can't be happening. You know, how does people do that? Like, and why do I do that? And from a compassionate standpoint, you know, the overwhelm mm -hmm. and how it impacts trust, because, you know, it's a constant background noise for me. It's just like, I'm doing everything. I'm wearing my mask. I don't go out very often. If I do, it's like tactical, you know, but that's like an eroding thing, right? This exterior of like constantly, I can't trust like I normally would very common environments that I like previously, it would be like, that's not part of my nervous system. And so like that is constantly buzzing for many of us. And mm. then you could just add up the con in this year, like how many things are stressing people um, constantly that wear on, you know, like in increased cortisol and things like that and interrupt the, those brain chemicals. Very much true. And uh, I want to give one fun example of something that boosted my brain chemistry last week. And I think actually it's fun for integral. <clears throat> if you haven't seen, uh, you can probably just Google heavy metal preacher. I posted it on oh, my Facebook yeah. thing. It is oh, such a gift of 2020, but a evangelical preacher preaching. And then some guy laid over the best heavy metal track to it. And it was like a match made in heaven. It is so Healthy, perfect. Yeah. I've watched it like 50 times every time I do the little brain, the chemicals in my brain, just ah, <laughs> like, I need this. I need heavy metal preacher right now. 
And uh, it's also interesting to analyze it from an integral perspective because it is fascinating. But anyway, I, I fell in love with a new TV show that had a very similar effect on me. Uh, Ted Lasso. If you haven't watched uh, Ted Lasso on Apple TV, the second person, watch me. it. I mean, you, I, your, your heart feels better after watching that show. It's, it's amazing. We need, we, we need these things. So I think this is a good point and also points to practice. Like one acknowledging the exterior is that like, um, it seems like m the majority of us are under additional pressure that interrupts the, yeah. the chemistry of the body, the nervous system. And if we can find ways to help balance that out where we can, you know, you mentioned sex, that's definitely good hugs, but even that's hard, you know, like the 20 second hug, like you do it long enough to get the uh, mm -hmm. chemicals flowing. But even that think about the exteriors, it's harder now. So it's like how many people are alone right now who are quarantining and don't get to see people. So you don't get the physical touch. You don't get all of these normal interactions that would help keep the system stable and, and flourishing, you know? So it's a really difficult time. Like, so how do we find that those, those moments, you know? Well, I mean, you put your, you put your, I mean, you put, you, you stuck your finger right into the, <laughs> I mean, this is so, this is so freaking complex because, you know, you mentioned the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So like the question there is how do you enfold your trust? Right. Because there's a lot of, it feels like that this is, you know, again, been sort of politicized and polarized into two camps. There's the camp who um, are largely among the left, who trust institutions who are telling us sort of best practices in order to deal with the pandemic. Uh, mask up, socially distance, spend as much time home as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. Don't go into public if you don't have to. Mm -hmm. Don't get too close to people, etc. So a lot of people among the left, myself included, place a higher degree of trust in those prescriptions than in other people's prescriptions. On the other side of the divide, however, what they're feeling is, oh, you're telling me not to trust my neighbors. You're telling me that when I go outside, I should cross the street if someone is walking down the sidewalk. Yeah, it's a very odd, it's a very odd request. And yeah. when we have to recognize the demand of that, so that's why I said earlier, a compassionate view here doesn't mean I like, I'm still not tolerant, you know, in a certain way, I'm just like, I'm like, no, this is too serious. And, and we've seen our society respond in, in better ways to, to, to crises in the past too. So it's not like the request is like abnormal or totally out of unprecedented, but I, there's gotta be compassion too of like, yeah, that's hard for people. I just kind of like today thought, I was like, you know what? It's official. Like humanity is just in over its head as Robert Keegan's book says, like, that's just part of it. Like I've been spent so much time being angry and mad that people aren't doing the, the taking uh, precautions like they should and like seeing the numbers skyrocket. Rocket, but it's like how what other conclusion can we make except for humanity is in over its head, like developmentally speaking? And it's not it's just a it's just a fact statement. It's not a excuse, it's not a tolerance, it's just like that's how it is. But connected to the trust issue, it's like, yeah, you know, I get it. People like when I think like of some of the, uh, like my ability to do this one, like my disposition of being an introvert and a recluse, you know, but also like all the time I've cultivated meditating and doing shadow work and everything like that has built up. Like I did a month long solitary retreat once. So it's like, I have some capacity built up to be able to handle this. But like, if I didn't have all those things, I'm like, who knows? Could I, could I tolerate it? Would I, would I give in even though I knew better? You know? So again, this is just a compassionate observation uh, that like it is hard and this all relates to trust, you know? Yep. Well, there's a, there's a, um, a funny meme that's being circulated right now from the right wing uh, that I thought was funny. And actually had, you know, some partial truth to it, which was it showed two pictures. And on the top picture, it said, um, 
you know, something like mainstream media watchers or something like that. And it's, it was people in like hazmat suits and masks and right. totally distant from each other. And underneath it, it says conspiracy theorists. And it's a family at like a Christmas dinner, just enjoying oh. themselves. And, you know, the funny yeah. thing being, usually you'd expect the conspiracy yeah, theorists to be the one right. walking around with masks and, and yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Now, right, right. you know, I look at that meme, I'm like, haha, that's, that's funny. It's kind of clever. And, you know, if you want to have all of those same people at your holiday table next Christmas and the Christmas after that yeah, and the yeah. Christmas after that, maybe we spend one Christmas in hazmat suits and masks. This is where, yeah, this is why we've got to like emphasize the facts of like the, you know, upper right quadrant, you know, kind of stuff. Of, yep. Yeah. And but when it lands on the level of trust, I mean, again, it's like, you know, you mm -hmm. see these stories of like, I'm introducing my baby to, you know, my parents through, mm -hmm. you know, plexiglass. And it's just like, yeah. there's a heartbreak that comes with that. And I think the conservatives yeah, are particularly tuned into that heartbreak. And it is mm -hmm. fucking heartbreaking. No, it's a, well, it's like it's it absolutely goes with the territory. There's no way because as humans, this is just how we're wired to connect and to touch, to be together. And so like there's just a cost. And now like you and I've said, like we we say it's well worth the cost. We have ability to what is the delayed gratification kind of thing, like to know that like, no, there's I can invest a year for right. the rest of the future, you know. It's like we can tolerate that and handle that, but I know a lot of people can't. So it doesn't mean that we don't do everything we can to get people on board and to empower them. But in this whole conversation of trust, there's a lot of systems that aren't working and a lot of distrust that makes it even harder to get people on board. You know, if it was just like one problem and everything else was freaking amazing, maybe people could like, okay, I can get on it. But there's so many things that aren't amazing. That's just like one thing after another. And I think people just lose their, their, their steam to stay yeah. here. And this relates to that trust. That's you know? right. Well, and, and the, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say like some one, one other thing came up for me is like, just in general is like, there's got to be an emphasis for me on baseline needs, like on recognition. And that I, that I say that from an integral, somebody who's, you know, integral identifies an integral and, uh, you know, progressive that like, even though I can see and value so many, a lot of needs that are, you know, kind of a Maslow's hierarchy kind of thing, like higher than baseline needs, we need to make sure that baseline needs are rock solid and that is what we haven't had for a long time and so some of the conversation we're talking about here is talking about baseline needs so this is why for example right now i'm not as a person who voted for joe biden i'm not so interested in the moment of criticizing whatever he's doing i'll do that later i'm just like man we've had not we haven't had baseline needs for a while that i just want baseline needs we can't have baseline needs when a pandemic it's really hard like we're trying to operate it's an emergency situation so yep part of the trust for me is like, if we don't have baseline needs met, the, 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 the less that those are met, the harder it's going to be period, just for trust and anything else. Right. No, it's all, all great points. And of course, if we're talking about sort of um, trust from a, a chemical perspective, you know, in terms of oxytocin, uh, we should also talk about fear, you know, <clears throat> fear um, is, uh, you know, obviously it's, it's antitrust. Um, fear lives in your amygdala. It releases both cortisol and glutamate into your system, which are both stress hormones. And both of these um, are very debilitating. They erode trust. They erode human bonding. So you end up feeling less connected to other people around you, even the people in your life who, you know, who are your loved ones. And over time, the effects of fear and stress on the brain, it's, it's terrible. I mean, it's yeah. terrible. It actually causes atrophy. And what is it? The hippocampus, the amygdala, um, and uh, the frontal lobe. 
So mm. basically what it does is, you know, being suspended in fear and stress for so long, it makes you dumber. It makes you less empathetic. It makes you less trusting and it makes you far more easy to manipulate. Right mm. now we have to start looking at what these stressors are because it could be something like, for example, living in, we've been living in fear for a year now, right? No matter what side of the divide you're on, this is generating fear. Right. If you're a liberal, you're you're more afraid of your neighbors and the people walking down the street in your direction. If you're a conservative, you're more afraid of this sort of top down institutional, what they perceive as authoritarianism that's stripping mm -hmm. us of our freedoms. Mm -hmm. Either way, it's generating fear. Yep. And that's really real. And, and all of that, I just want to point out, all of that gets exacerbated when we live in a society that has certain habits that are just so ingrained in our society. So in our society, in America, we know that we have a terrible sugar addiction, right? M the majority of people in this country overdose, myself included. This is my, I mean, I've got huge shadow issues in this. You know, this is my work in a lot of ways. I, I have a sugar addiction and I notice the physiological effects that having too much sugar will have on me for like a week, right? It'll affect my interior states. It'll make me more edgy, more prone to sort of, you know, getting angry. My fuse gets shorter, right? Yeah. So I have to actually bring some mindfulness to this because I can see how this is, yeah. how this is affecting me personally. When yeah. you extrapolate that out to an entire society that's yeah. struggling with sugar intake, that's struggling with diabetes, that's struggling with obesity, right? Mm -hmm. And then you lay all these stressors on top of that. Yeah, it it's makes a serious it, breaking point. Huge breaking point. And it keeps people trapped. And I think, Ryan, this is why we have seen a measurable decrease of empathy, mm -hmm. like almost 50% in 30 years. Yeah, well, it's 40 years. It was, it was yeah, a 40 it's, year it's a pretty easy thing to reflect on for all of us. It's just like, like, uh, what's your best day of empathy? Is it uh, when you're like freshly, you know, good night's sleep, happy, no stress, or is it that day when like no, no sleep, everything is going wrong in your day? Like, it's just common. It's just like, yeah, we're going to be on our best when things are going well and we're resourced. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, and notice again, just the four quadrant. I mean, how quickly it cycles through the four quadrants, yeah, right? Yeah. So in the upper right, I have too much sugar one night because I'm stoned and I have munchies and I eat too much candy, <laughs> right? The next day, my I, I wake up and I'm groggy in my upper left and I'm just kind of cranky and grumpy. So I have an interaction with my wife and maybe, you know, I, yeah. I, I say something unskillful uh -huh. and then that creates tension yeah. between us, which then yeah. affects our family unit and yeah. the lower right and how we yeah. The world together. So all of this, just like you know, none of this is isolated to just one. Again, it's what makes it a wicked problem. Something yeah. happens in this quadrant, it immediately changes hmm. all of the other factors and all of the other quadrants, and it yeah. just cascades. Yeah, which is what makes intervention so difficult. Yeah, well, I, I've done so much better with the sugar thing, but that's always been my struggle. So like, I've I've got a hold on it for the most part, but I feel like I'd be your your bad addiction partner because I like you said all the thing, and I I just glossed over all of your pain and suffering. I'm like, but but what was it? What did you eat there the other night? Can you describe yeah. it for me, Corey? Right. Yep. <laughs> no, I ate half a freaking Dairy Queen ice cream cake. Oh, Dairy Queen. I haven't had Dairy Queen forever. <laughs> See, this is why we're not going to help each other in that department. <laughs> it's a good thing we don't live in the same city. It's a good thing. <laughs> good thing. Yeah. Yep. 
so many, so many stressors. I think that's the point. Just so max amount of stressors all at one time makes trust the practice of trust very, very difficult. And it's and happening across the important the thing to remember too is that there, there are interventions here, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you can lower your sugar intake. It's mm-hmm. difficult because they're habits. It's yeah. hard as hell to change a habit, right? But it yep. can be done. You yep. can exercise more. It's hard as hell to get that started, right? It can be like, feel like you're just like trying to run through a wall, yeah. um, but it can be done. You can find yep. that discipline and you can do it. So there are interventions along with every single one of these. Yes. Um, yes. That's, that's important for us to track. So now let's, let's kind of shift over to the, uh, to the lower left issues. And obviously the lower left is, I mean, you know, in the I thou relationship, God is the hyphen. Well, in the mm-hmm. I thou relationship, trust is the hyphen as well. Right. Right. So, yep. so much of this, you know, the conversation of trust lands directly in the lower left quadrant. And I think that there are ways to enact this sort of um, on a personal level on an individual mm-hmm. level. Like, how can we be more available to each other? How can we take each other's do yeah. a better job taking each other's perspective, inhabiting each other's views, um, uh-huh. et cetera. But I think there's also some really important, you know, sort of um, organizational factors that we could talk about as well. Um, I've got a small list if you want me to share it. Sure. So I think that, you know, when it comes to trying to fix the language here is going to be a little bit difficult because some of this is going to sound like lower right, but I'm framing it as lower left because all of this begins with a shared intention on an organizational level, right? And then it gets executed in the lower right and, and elsewhere. But, you know, I think that one of the most important things to begin with is, you know, you mentioned earlier, making sure that the institutions that you're demanding people have more trust in, that you need to make sure that those institutions are actually delivering real benefit to people, real benefit. And not only that, you are, you are adequately communicating that benefit to people because we are really, really good at being sort of talked out of our own best interests, mm. um, you know, which is something we see happening politically on both sides of the divide all the time. So being able to clearly communicate the benefit of this institution, how it serves you, how it makes your life better, more convenient, right? Um, gives you more mobility, more opportunity, et cetera. The more we can do that and sort of, you know, start creating on a narrative level, um, as well as an evidence-based level, um, more justification for these institutions, the better it's going to be. Uh, the second one is to, to simply develop leaders who are capable of working for the greater good and not just for themselves. And this one is really, really difficult because like our entire sphere of politics is based on, you know, this illusion of um, social benevolence, which is actually sort of a mask for your own kind of, you know, desire to seek and secure power. Um, so how do you actually know when uh, a leader is coming from an authentic place? Uh, you know, how do you know when, when a leader is uh, not just another corporate lobbyist, but is an actual civil servant? For mm. Example? Mm. Um, I don't know if I have an algorithm that makes it easy to detect, but <laughs> simply asking the question, right? What are the motivations here? Um, you know, are, are we looking for you know, ways to sort of perpetuate political power for you know, a, a single party, for example? And therefore, these leaders are conforming themselves and, you know, kind of strategizing uh, and, and, and really making themselves inauthentic in order to get very particular, you know, tactical goals of like permanent power, for example. Um, how do you actually discern that? You know, there's a lot of people on the left who look at someone like Obama and being like, well, here's a great example of someone who I feel like 
was coming from a greater good. But I can also understand the plurality of people who disagree with that. And like, no, Obama was, you know, kind of more like other presidents than not. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how much I agree with that view, but I understand it because it's a spectrum, right? Um, yeah, well, uh, Ken, in that same chapter I mentioned earlier, uh, Ken talks about altitude and aptitude amongst leaders in the Wii space, because he mentions leaders in the Wii space, just like you're doing now. So, like, uh, if we focus only on aptitude, we miss something. So, obviously, Interval's always wanting to bring in the combination of altitude and aptitude as far as assessing leaders. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Ken's so smart. He's, he's, he's done a few things. Yeah, Put a few things together. He said a few smart things in the past. <laughs> That's right. Um, so number three is uh, a fairly obvious one, but you know, again, one of those things that's a little bit easier said than done. Increasing accountability and transparency in our institutions. So it's one thing for an institution to deliver you benefit and to be able to, you know, properly communicate to you how you're benefiting from this institution existing in the first place. But when it comes to actually, then, you know deepening that trust in the institution, accountability and transparency are huge. I mean, no wonder our, our nation, our culture has become as cynical as it has when, for example, after the 2008 economic crash, no one was held accountable. No one was held accountable. There was no mm. accountability to be found. And then just a couple years later, when all of these leaks come out about, you know, how many people are offshoring their wealth and keeping it in the Cayman Islands and all this like obviously incredibly corrupt shit that's happening in the highest echelons of power and there's zero accountability for it right mm -hmm. zero accountability that is going to erode trust so being able to find ways to enforce accountability um, and transparency you know I'm not I'm not a big fan of transparency. It sounds funny to say I'm more a fan of translucency. I'm fully aware that it's not a hundred, you know, ideas of a hundred percent transparency are not always appropriate, mm -hmm. but I am for making things as reasonably translucent as mm -hmm. you possibly can while still sort of preserving the, you know, inertia of the institution itself. There's some things that, you know, are, are too wonky maybe, or are too, morally complex you know i think of things like drone warfare um drone warfare is uh it's, it's easy to sort of come at this from like a very black or white view like um oh i'm anti-drone warfare because civilians are killed and there's no accountability versus oh i love drone warfare because we shouldn't be putting american boots in the ground if we don't have to and risking our own soldiers lives and we need military interventions in the world still because we don't live in this world where everyone is turquoise and gets along just fine mm -hmm. there's some real evils in the world mm -hmm. and it's you know sort of uh um you know first world nations have a, an obligation to work together to stem out that evil whenever they can and unfortunately sometimes it means dropping bombs um so you know i'm 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 aware of the challenges here and that things aren't always uh, black and white, but creating as much accountability and as much transparency as possible is always. Yeah, it's great. Yep. That's great. I think it directly relates to trust. Uh, yep. Number four. And I think this is critical actually, because this is actually an example of, I want you to trust me. So therefore I have to trust you. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that an organization can do that is to actually crowdsource um, these sorts of community problems and challenges among the people and actually just say, hey, can you help me solve this problem? Can you help us solve this problem, right? And I think that what this does is it not only creates this sort of, you know, two-way highway of trust and communication, but it actually 
sort of invites this groundswell of what we might call seniors, right? Just sort of the, the genius that's shared in any sort of collective population, which is very different than things like mob rules and sort of, mm-hmm. you know, we all know that when you put a bunch of human beings together into a big group, we kind of turn into dumb animals. We know that. <laughs> but there's also a wisdom, you know, uh, Alan Watkins has, has written a lot about this in uh, Crowdocracy. You know, he gives the, the example of uh, people who guess the number of gumdrops that are, hmm. that are in a barrel. No individual gets anywhere right. But when you average all of the answers from all the individuals, it's almost always dead on. Oh, that's fascinating. Really, really close to dead on. So yeah. there is this sort of emergent wisdom among huh. a, a population that yeah. can be harnessed, right? In order to not only rebuild trust, but to solve problems in so doing. So I think that there's a lot of, you know, of great ideas around this with like community policing, for example. That's a great way for police forces to start rebuilding trust in their own communities. Um, yeah. Just as one example. That's great. Yeah. Uh, number five, strengthening social inclusion. What's funny about this is this sounds a lot like the woke project. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, the woke project, what makes them uh, as pathological as they often are, is that they are actually not strengthening social inclusion. They are uh, creating exclusive sort of circles of belief and of values and of views. And anyone who does not share or participate in those values and views are pushed out, are pushed mm. into the margins. Mm. So this is obviously, you know, wokeism is a very, very unhealthy version of pushing for um, strong social inclusion. What we actually need here is a return to the healthy green project, Mm. right? Mm. There's something about, um, you know, green in and of itself when it's healthy is vibrant and it's beautiful. And God does our world need more of it Mm. right now, especially Mm. when it comes to um, rebuilding these bridges um, Mm. and, and, you know, sort of finding our trust in each other again. Uh, Mm. And then the last one is simply um, establishing real commitment. And that's, you know, that's a tough one too, because it's easier. It's always easier to say things than it is to do things, right? But mm. saying things is always the first step. And so institutions, our media institutions, our governing institutions, etc., need to acknowledge that there's a problem here. CNN needs to come out and say, hey, we acknowledge that 40% of the country thinks we are lying with every word that comes out of our mouth. <laughs> We need to acknowledge this and we need to accept this as a real challenge and we need to rehabilitate ourselves and our relationship, Mm. right? If Mm. we ever want to be seen as a credible, legitimate news organization worth trusting. Yeah. Um, And so Mm. it's, you know, you really have to be able to name the problem, right? uh, you know, and and I'm, I I feel I'm glad um, for the fact that again, at least by appearances, We'll see if the if the walk follows the talk. But by appearances, Joe Biden is taking that problem seriously. He's recognizing that there is a massive problem of trust mm. and solidarity in this country. Mm. And he's trying to give, you know, I mean, we can be political opponents without being enemies. Just as like, hey, how's this for a baseline? You know, like a basic well, baseline. Yeah, that's what I was talking about earlier. Baseline needs is uh, there's we got to. I mean, it's just like a kind of I don't know. It feels like a common sense kind of thing a little bit, but um, about like you just imagine this personal relationship of like you and a group of friends. It's just like you can't do any get anything done if like you're emphasizing uh, blaming uh, uh, the whole time. And now that there's there's a balance there. It's like we're not talking about getting rid of accountability, but right now I feel like there's a lot of fear in letting go 
into like a little bit of trust too. That's what it feels like because it's sort mm-hmm. of just like, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff really messed up and that's really painful right now. But like for me, there's been a breath of fresh air to just hear. I want to hear somebody say like, listen, let's get together. Let's let's make something happen. All right. I want to hear some positive framing, not in a naive way, but it's just like, I think like we we're talking earlier, like almost like a fundamental evolutionary need. If we don't have some of that like warmth of connection, regardless of like what level it is, even if it's like sort of baseline sociocentric connection, you know, with each other, it's just like, well, good luck in solving our problems because otherwise we're going to be like pissed off siblings and be like, no, you started it. And it's like, I get it. Like, I'm not equalizing everything at all, but I'm just like, gosh, at a certain point we need to come together a little bit. And that might be like the best version of that, like a green inclusivity that's a healthy inclusivity, you know? <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, all, all well said. And of course, all these prescriptions I just described are all sort of um, many to many solutions in the lower yeah, left. Right. You could also spend an entire show talking about one to one solutions in the lower left. And you've already mentioned a ton of that. I mean, this is where things like, um, you know, just coming at uh, any interaction in good faith. That's one way we can generate more trust in the lower left by seeking to get beneath each other's views where we're almost certainly going to disagree and instead reconnecting along our shared values. That is a lower left quadrant one-to-one strategy that people can use in every interaction they have, whether online or face-to-face. So there's any number of these things that we can do with each other, both one-to-one and as sort of on an organizational level, that's going to generate in the long-term more trust within that lower left space between us. Mm. Um, and when that happens, I think that we will we'll feel it, right? We'll feel it in our relationships with each other. We'll feel it in our relationships to the world. We'll feel like there's this closing of a gap, mm. right? We'll feel like there's this um, less temptation to jump to conclusions about each other's views and what that means about them morally or in terms of their intelligence or you know what have you. Because people hold on to views that are sometimes two or three full stages behind where the rest of their sort of the center of gravity of their development is at. Because Mm. views are usually the very last thing that we push through these new lenses that we develop for ourselves as we continue to grow up and as we continue to wake up and clean up. Views tend to come last. And it takes a lot of work to reevaluate all of these presuppositions that you've been walking around with. And it also takes a lot of humility as well. And it takes a lot of trust that you can talk with someone who holds an opposing viewpoint of your own, to your own, who can inform your viewpoint and maybe even dislodge you from some faulty reasoning. Mm-hmm. And that takes humility in, in the space of, of you know, human interaction. Yeah, humility is going to be probably a lot of a big of antidote that we're going to have to swallow <laughs> one way or another to get through all this. Yep. Um, well, uh, I also want to share some of these practices here uh, be, uh, since I'm going to be having to leave uh, in a bit. Yeah, um, well, we're, we're also, going right into the upper left, baby. So why don't you take it but, over? Well, uh, just real quick, I don't know if you want to respond to a comment in YouTube. I, I, I assume it's for you, but really uh, the person just said, dude. Uh, rather than I'm a dude. Names. So could we, we both identify as dudes. Um, so I'm not sure who, which dude you were talking about there. Um, 
<laughs> Sounds like it's great in theory, uh, but it seems like it's been developed indoors about engagement with any of the ideas being shared. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm honestly not too sure how to respond to that because, um, you know, obviously everything I'm sharing um, comes from a combination of my own personal experience, what has worked for me uh, in various conversations with people. It's come through a lot of research in terms of how are, you know, some of the smartest minds, um, or at least minds that I recognize as being smarter than myself, how are they approaching this problem from a systemic point of view, from an organizational point of view? Um, so I'm basically just trying to compile some of these interventions uh, and kind of putting them all in one space yeah. without saying any one of these is going to be the magic bullet to fix anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so the, the nature of this show, obviously, so this is part of the Integral Life Network and um, obviously integral is very theoretically oriented. And um, so that's just natural. And there's always that classic dichotomy of researchers and clinicians. And, uh, you know, like saying, for example, in in psychology, you know, and that's always gonna be true. That's not just say there's a dichotomy or either or, but there's a spectrum of like, where does somebody operate? And it's all needed, like an integral, it's like all included. It's not a picking of one or the other. So like theory is really helpful. And the more in the trenches you are, the less you are in the theory and being able to take a look back to get perspective, but the more hands are you are, you are, and then the more you can inform the people who are taking perspectives and you work together. So like something being theoretical is not in and of itself negative. And I, yeah, I would disagree with the, like being somehow detached from life, you know, because for example, in your situation, you talk to a lot of people here at Integral Life who are in the thick uh, of things as well you know, in addition to your own lived experience. Mm-hmm. And ironically, the indoors is an interesting thing. It's like most everything these days is happening <laughs> indoors, separated. So it's like, this is kind of like what the space we're living in. But um, yeah, uh, so, and, and it's always a good starting point too. It's like, this is what we offer here. A lot of times as a starting point. It's like, uh, I was always asked is like, was nothing useful in that? Was it right. all batshit crazy? Or was there some useful things that then, we all can take and continue molding and working with. That's the idea here that we're talking. We're not, we're never prescribing, like we you say prescription, but it's just like, this is a starting point. Let's see where, where it goes. What do you think about this? And it would be surprising to me if we were just like, wow, nothing of what you just said was relevant at all. So yeah. I don't know, we're always explaining like the spirit in which we're sharing here, but. Well, and I, and I guess my question, you know, would be um, for anyone who, who comes in with a comment like that, like, I, are you making the comment um, in good faith? Yeah, that's because always a good thing, right? You are awesome. I mean, and, and I, I'm going to assume that you were, and there, that's that's why we chose to respond to it. I'm assuming yeah. it's a good faith comment, but I would ask, you know, a follow-up question to maybe ask yourself is, are you asking this question because you're coming into this conversation already from a space of mistrust? Like, we're just two, you know, dudes with faces on YouTube right now, right? And uh, I don't trust the majority of people that I find on YouTube. Yep. So there's sort of this automatic assumption of like, oh, I'm going to be a little bit cautiously. Yeah. Well, and the, and the sign here would be um, what what can I offer creatively? If I'm, if I'm criticizing and deconstructing something, do I have, I one of two things. I need to offer something creative to show my good faith, right? To show that I'm interested in a solution and I, that I feel like I have something here to offer which requires vulnerability because I have to share mine and be subjected to the same sort of criticism, or I have to be vulnerable and humble and say like, listen, what you're saying doesn't make sense to me. I think it's harmful or whatever. And I have no idea. Right. 
So if you don't do either of those two things, the, the, your good faith is in question for me just in general, like, and I hold that standard to myself too, in these contexts of, of integral. So that's the thing. It's like, and not to mention again, as we said, we hold this in a spirit of like creative pondering and wondering. That's kind of what this container is for. And we try to, as far as integral goes, lean towards an embodied approach of like, let's get practical, which is what we're going to talk about now, you know, yeah. um, of like, let's talk about what we can do practically speaking, you know, yes. and you, and, I, and you really, the we stuff you already offered was great. And to me, I would just add on that simple finding, like we talked about we spaces, finding um, a we that you can be a part of that feels really good and nourishing. And it feels like this year that has been a lifeline in a lot of ways, online community. So integral life, the new practice community that's shown up has filled out this sense of, of there's a community here. There are these, all these shows, there's the audience, there's the forums, there's the Facebook, there's uh, the practice community. And, you know, for me over at Buddhist Geeks as well, we have a, we've a flourishing community over there of online training. So like that thing of being able to connect with people, even though there's still something about being in person to have that feeling of connection. That's one thing that I would recommend as a practice is find a community that you can be a part of um, that's not, it's not about an echo chamber. It's about like relationship. Like, do you feel a re, do you feel relationship there? You know? Um, and it might be around certain interests like integral theory or meditation or whatever it is, but like, do you feel part of something? Do you feel belonging to something? And if you can't answer that question, that would be something I would, uh, I would invite you to sit with is like, where are you? Cause we're all belonging. That's we're part of a we as well. We're not only a we, but we are a we. And if that, if you want to avoid that question of like, I don't want to talk about belonging, then that's going to relate to trust. Yep. Absolutely. hundred percent. hundred percent. And I, and for my, my part, I would never ask someone to trust that I'm getting it all right. Oh yeah. What I, what I do ask is that people for trust sure. that I'm doing my best to get it right. Yeah, I'm not always going right. to be right, but I'm always going to do my best to get it right. And there's, well, a, there's a really important difference there. Oh, and that happens in demonstration. So it's like, can we demonstrate the good faith of like saying like, I really care. And again, this relates to the vulnerability. Like I care and I'm going to show up and I'm going to talk about these issues and also say like, yeah, like, oh, certainly going to be partial. That's the whole thing about integral partial, but true. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, we're going to be partial automatically. And that's why we do a we conversation because like you said, with the gumballs, it's kind of like a, a neat example of like, put enough together, maybe we're going to figure some things out, you know? That's right. Right. So yeah, a few things I wanted to share, like just practice before we get to the end of the show today, like um, in the upper left, uh, I do think that community thing is huge, especially this year. That has been for me, like a standout that that has been really, really important. Just being part of a community that's healthy and nourishing and gives a sense of belonging. But in terms of individual practice, in terms of getting resourced, like we talked about earlier, anything that gives in a healthy way, the, the, the chemicals in the body, you know, uh, a good brain chemistry is great. I'm not an expert on that per se, but there's a lot of expertise out there about how to do that kind of thing. Um, but uh, in terms of being resourced, like, you know, there's plenty of research on just like standard, it's kind of like watch meditation, but like meditation that can help regulate the nervous system that can help change blood pressure that can do the, the brain chemistry thing. So, um, you need to research which meditation practices would be best. There's a lot of scientific journals out there that would talk about which meditation they, they studied, but uh, there's a lot of options and there's a lot of people to, to work with around that, but just doing some sort of meditation can be grounding. Um, other specific meditations, you know, like earth breathing, um, 
uh, embodiment practices that help you get down in the body rather than like pulling up, you know, and tensing, like how can we release and feel grounding if we can get outside and feel the earth, touch the earth, very simple things. There's a lot of practices here, big traditions, but I'm just mentioning it in like basic way. Find one of these things that, that can help do that. Yep. A couple practices beyond that, that really get into like trust is, um, doing Zen noting that like we've called over at Buddhist geeks Zen noting, um, would be, um, as blank there is. So it kind of feels similar to like big mind stuff, but it's slightly different. And so as trust, there is uncertainty, you know, like I'm going to try to inhabit trust as trust, there is hope. So you can do this practice where you note as trust and you're trying to inhabit trust or just see what comes up and you know what comes up. This helps get you into a real organic relationship, a kind of real time. Where am I at with trust right now? There's some, there's some big mind overlap with that. Let me speak. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's very, it's very much uh, very similar. Um, so, but it's a very simple format because when you say there is, you can just use one or two words. Right. And so it makes it a little tight. Um, so, uh, and then, gosh, dang it. There's a uh, one other one. Uh, well, I can mention a few while you find it. Um, I found it was interesting that the American Psychological Association recommends loving kindness meditation. Oh, yeah. Which actually to me- Any any heartful practice. Yep, yep, absolutely. Which to me shows how much of this sort of, um, let's just call it higher consciousness has trickled down (laughs) into society over the last 20 years. You didn't see a lot of mentions of loving kindness meditation or really any meditations. Uh, yeah. in the journals 20, 25 years ago. So I see that as um, really, really encouraging. Um, yes. Gratitude practice is one that can really lead with. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, Just gratitude. Like, Thank you for bringing those up. Gratitude and like heartful practice, heartfulness-based practices, meta practices. Those could be like, for me, almost in that like foundational things, like uh, like a standard kind of like mindfulness, regulation practice, grounding practices, earth-based practices, heartfulness um, each of them kind of gets at a different facet. Like you can do formless meditation and that's going to give you a certain sort of resiliency and anti-fragility and all that, that you can bring to all the rest of your experiences. But then you have these like sort of focused practice, these form-based practices, like yeah. a, a gratitude practice, or, you know, can also leads with forgiveness practice. Yeah. Yeah. And here the, the invitation for me, like if I, as a standard kind of default invitation is to like feel out what is most useful in this moment. And of course, community mentors and teachers can be really helpful for that, which also helps with everything we're talking about here because there's relationship, but these are good default recommendations. Another one here, that's really interesting that I was just thinking about, although I don't know that I've tried this version out, but we, uh, there's a format called binary noting in social meditation that we use where you note a dichotomy of something and moment to moment, you're going to notate which note, which of them are arising. And it could be trust or no trust. For example, I go back and forth, like, or some of the other ones we've used before lacking and or not lacking. And it's just like moment to moment, how I feel. It's like, there's their trust, no trust, mm. trust, no trust, you know, and you just know that again, it's, ex- it's shining light on what's happening with trust in us moment to moment. And that often we oscillate. You know, so that's another way of getting into trust specifically. And then one last thing, um, this is from Michael Taft. Um, he came up with some metasystematic koans that like are, uh, would be in, in the realm of metadharma, integral dharma. And mm-hmm. I think they're really neat and relate to this. 
Um, there's, we have it in our metadharma guide, but um, the, some of the, the way their phrase is really interesting. They're meant to provoke, but like you just ask them kind of like a koan, uh, what do I believe will save me this time? What is the truth that will, is always true? And you just, you just ask the question and see what arises and it's going to get at trust here. I'm a hundred percent, I'm a hundred percent certain that and see what comes up. These are some of these koans here. So this is a spectrum like in working with trust on the, on one end, it's um, just resourcefulness so that trust can be easier that it can happen. Cause we, if it's something that we need to survive as humans, then how can we support that? Then the next you, then you go more and more into like trust itself and kind of getting into the content where it's going to stir things up a little bit, start shining light, turning subject into object. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is really important as you mentioned. Um, so there, there are a lot of things I think you can work with. If I had to recommend base things, it's community and then some of those foundational meditations like grounding and embodiment and um, heartfulness. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think what we're seeing is, uh, you know, just to talk about Ken's multi-layered cake again. Yeah. Um, we've got a whole upper left quadrant cake here in terms of strategies to deal yep. with this. Yep. And I think that, you know, one of the things that's probably fairly um, self-evident is that practices that increase empathy are also going to increase trust, yep. right? There is no trust without empathy. Empathy is the space within which your trust can emerge in the first place. Yeah. There's some, some common uh, empathy building practices that are not, you know, they don't feel like homework. They're actually like enjoyable. It's things that you want to do. Um, reading fiction is one of the best ways. There, we've actually studied, this has a, a, a small, but a measurable impact on increasing empathy simply by reading fiction, right? Because this is putting you into alternate perspectives, dealing with alternate problems and challenges, and you're, you're sort of, you know, embodying someone else's point of view um, as they take you through the story and through this narrative, and you're applying it to your own life and your own thinking. So all yeah. of that can be very sort of expanding. And again, it's yeah. fun. People love reading fiction. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's, there's stuff like this. And I think that there's some intellectual pieces here as well. So simply studying integral, I think, is going to help you, <laughs> mm. right, with these challenges. Simply mm. having the language to discern and identify when these things are popping up in your experience and knowing sort of what shape they're taking and how they're affecting sort of all these yeah. other... Having more reference points. Yeah. So like a few, you know, a few episodes ago, um, I came up with this, this map around the issue of trust. And I just want to uh, post it one more time for people because I think it's relevant to this episode. And this to me is an example of an intellectual frame that we can use to kind of track our own experience. So this is yeah. using both sort of integral thinking, but also a particular uh, injunction known as uh, polarity thinking. In order to, you know, the, let me just sort of back up. The basic premise of polarity thinking is to first identify what the real polarities are that you're working with. And you know it's a real polarity if both of them are either positive or sort of neutral. So, for example, you know, Ryan, you were talking about this toggling practice, trusting, yep. trusting, for, uh-huh. for example. That's, that's, one, that's one version of a practice. Mm-hmm. A polarity version is actually saying, okay, well, not trusting is... I can't find any positive qualities to not trusting. Yep. So that doesn't seem to be a polarity as much as what I came up with was trust and verify, right? Mm-hmm. Both of which can lapse into, mm-hmm. 
you know, particular negatives. So on the positive side of trust, there is, as we talked about, there's a basic assumption of good faith. There's an awareness of basic journalistic standards, how stories are written in the first place. There's an appreciation for fourth estate political roles played by things like mainstream media. Uh, and then there's a basic premise that you start with that reality is knowable, right? Like I can approach these things. I, that reality is knowable. It's understandable. And if I put in the work, I can trust that I will have a better understanding of the world around me. On the flip side of that, trust polarity is the is the verification polarity, which looks a lot like critical thinking. There's an assumption, there's a good faith that comes with trust, but there's also an assumption of unavoidable implicit bias that exists in all sources, right? The question is, is how cynical are you being about where that bias is coming from? Do you think it's some top-down Illuminati conspiracy, or do you think it's, for example, basic profit motives in the lower right quadrant, all of which tend to be very short-sighted, short-term? Etc. Um, there's an intentional seeking out of sources that are high factual, low bias. There's uh, seeking out alternative perspectives that help eliminate bias when you find it, and so forth. And then for each of these, both on the trust and the verification, there's downsides. If you have too much trust but not enough critical thinking, it results in something like naivety, where you have this, uh, for example, an assumption that all media outlets are always telling the truth and they always have our best interests at heart. That's a bit of a straw man. I don't think I've ever known a single person who believes that, but just to kind of straw man that point. Um, there's often refusal to, to falsify sources that come from different viewpoints than your own. Um, so th th this is what happens when we have too much trust, not enough critical thinking. And then there's the negative polarity of having too much critical thinking and not enough trust, which I think is the larger problem that we're dealing with in this society right now. This looks like cynicism. And again, it comes from an overemphasis on critical thinking and a total absence of trust. There's an assumption that all media outlets have only malicious interests in heart. They're only trying to manipulate and dominate us. Those are sort of narrative conclusions that come out of this space of cynicism. Uh, there, you know, there's, um, well, again, there's a whole list there. You guys can look at, pause the video, check out. Um, but I think that this is useful because it gives us this, this mental scaffolding, these basic guardrails to recognize, oh, okay, I'm kind of falling a little bit too far in this direction. I'm going to course correct. Okay, now I'm far, you know, going a little far in this direction. The idea is to bring these polarities into integration with each other, to have yeah. a healthy version of trust, a healthy version of critical thinking, and you're bringing those together in order to regenerate trust, again, between each other, in institutions, in God, in evolution, um, and so forth. Yeah. And uh, this also ties back into earlier when I mentioned David Chapman's meaningness and uh, incomplete stances, eternalism and nihilism shows up right there. It's like complete trust without question or can't trust anything. And the point here, like, and especially how like we, we practice integral Dharma over Buddhist geeks and how I teach it is that like, you have to like see these in your lived experience. And so like, if for example, we have tendencies, which we all do of oscillating, like we have to have a question, like a complete stance would be, as you said, to be able to hold both of these. And I think that is true that like more and more they can be held simultaneously, but also the reality isn't quite so perfect. And so it's sure. really important for us to be, to show when we oscillate. And that's why like earlier when I mentioned the binary practice, what that kind of practice does is shows um, how we oscillate ourselves between these in real time directly. So we use that kind of map there to show like, okay, this makes sense. I see how this really plays out now in practice. Let's see if I can loosen myself up from this because if I can see that I'm buying into eternalism or nihilism or 
naive trust or cynical verification, I'll see that play out real time. And if I can see it more and more than the, then I am uh, disembedding from it. Right. And so we have to have a practical tool to do that. So something like binary noting is great. And, um, and it fits I, right into this map because often that no, it's, it's perfect. It's kind of perfect. How the, yeah, we tie it together because we're from the diagonals. That's what you're toggling is the diagonals. Like you're yeah, doing yeah. versus cynicism is what you're kind yeah. of toggling in that moment. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. It was nice to, to bring that in there. The one thing I would, I mentioned too, is like, even though we've talked about upper left, I, I was just realizing it's a good point to make here that for example, again, over at Buddhist geeks, we use social meditation a lot because it's a really good format to do online, but it's just good in general because it's so odd that we, haven't ever done that before. It would like, usually it's like, oh, we're all meditating together, but everybody's having just their own little individual experience and we're not practicing together. But how do you do that in an integral way? You know, well, for example, if we do a social noting practice, like, like I just mentioned, like trust, no trust, we just take turns. So everybody has their own individual experience, but we are practicing together. We're our witnessing and hearing each other yet. We're not getting into the content of it. So you don't have to get in this massive, like debriefing there. So practicing together there is a social lower left experience when we do social meditation even though there's also an in upper left experience that's unfolding and tonight actually this week um, we we kind of pioneered a new practice recently uh, called zen noting relay where we're, we're going to do it actually as a social practice where for example Corey, you might start off with a there is note you know and it might be there is curiosity i take your note like a baton as curiosity there is and i look at my experience and whatever I know, there is, as curiosity, there is not knowing. The next person as not knowing, there is. And you create this relay, which makes it even more a social practice. But it, I realize it really does balance a lot of things, individual, collective, it's operating subject, object. It's quite an interesting interval practice. It's, so con I, it's contemplative improv. Yeah, it is really kind of like that. And we have a reset button though in there. So like there's a masculine and feminine thing where a person can reset the whole chain at any moment. Right. Anyways, I think there's a lot that we can cultivate a lot that's being innovated this year. If we look around too, that gives me hope. Like when we look the integral community, practice community emerged. Interesting, yep. emerged now, that didn't exist. And now it's here, wonderful, right. you know? So that's beautiful. these are things to, to give hope. Well, Ryan, this has been an awesome show. I know you got to bounce off. Yeah. You know, I want to just put a final bow on the conversation and just say that, um, you know, my experience is that trust is curative. That trust, is actually more than anything else what allows us to confront with and deal with our various shadow issues um, you know for example doing these shows um, when I started doing these shows it rubbed against every fear anxiety uncertainty insecurity that I had public speaking was like you know mm. the major threat in my life and especially like having to be held accountable to such high standards as integral it scared the shit out of me but through these conversations with people like you, Ryan, who I trust implicitly and explicitly, right? There is just a baseline of trust that I feel with you, that I feel with Ken, that I feel mm -hmm. with Dr. Keith Witt, that I feel with the people that I'm doing these shows with that has actually allowed me to confront and yeah. deal with and metabolize these shadow issues from yeah. episode to episode to episode mm -hmm. to the point where now, you know, this many years in, like I feel more yeah. confident doing these shows than I ever felt before. And it comes totally. from that space of trust. It comes from that hyphen in the I-thou relationship um, that's yep. shared between you and I and, you know, and, yeah. and, and others. And I'm just, I'm deeply grateful for that. Yeah, likewise. Um, yeah, man. Yeah, this has been great, man. I'm, I'm glad we were able to surf this year together. And uh, hey, this is the last, our last one for 2020. Holy shit. Wow. 
We're going to yep. see you all in 2021. We'll see you next year, guys. Yeah. <laughs> like the worst dad joke. Everyone uses hey. it. Yeah, I love dad jokes. <laughs> My daughter actually has a shirt that says, I love dad jokes. I make her as often as Dow, I, I need to get that one. <laughs> Great. All right, Ryan. Well, thank you so much for your time, man. As yeah, always. thank you. And uh, thank you everyone for watching. And, yeah. you know, speaking of crowdsourcing solutions, let us know in the comments below what you think is going to help generate trust, more yeah. trust, both in the short term, in the long term, in the integral community and elsewhere. We want to hear your thoughts. So that'd be lovely. In the meantime, see you later, everyone. See ya. Huh?